and welcome to uh, another episode of The Greatest Podcast in History. The I'm Greatest Dylan. Podcast in History, and I'm Mitch. And this week, uh, we're talking about, we have a super special episode for you. We're talking about some of the most interesting stuff, uh, doing a little uh, Olympics history, I think. Yeah, um, the, the economic impact of the Olympics on Brazil. Exactly, it's going to be a pretty heady episode, uh, maybe pretty much of a downer, so... Very serious. Strap in, get the Kleenex ready, and... Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition! Tricked you guys. I <laughs> uh, gotcha. Zing. Bang, bang. Um, we're actually talking about the Spanish Inquisition today. Yeah. The thing that nobody ever expects. And then you die. Yeah, exactly. So it can be a bit of a downer, but exactly. we're, we'll try and make it a little bit. It's um, pretty crazy. There's a lot of uh, a lot of stuff happening in the Spanish Inquisition, weirdly enough. Yeah. Seeing as it, you know, lasted for a couple hundred years. Like 400 <laughs> years. Yeah. And it's like a huge part of the Spanish Empire. Yeah. Um, so we, we'll find some cool tidbits for you. Actually, we're actually going to focus not just on the Inquisition in Spain, but in how it affected uh, Central America and South America. Yeah, I mean, more specifically. the Inquisition um, kind of as an institution, and the idea of an Inquisition was actually global. Yeah. Um, there had been a medieval in- Inquisition that had gone on, um, I think, in like Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, I could be wrong on that, but... We're yeah, never wrong was, on the show. Never was, mind. We're never wrong. I'm completely right. Run by, you know, the papacy. Yeah. The Catholic Church. And around the same time, the Spanish Inquisition, there was also an Italian Inquisition, though, mm-hmm. and a French Inquisition. Exactly. The weird thing about the Spanish Inquisition, though, was that unlike the uh, English, Italian, all the other Inquisitions, it was run by the state of Spain. The Italian and the French ones were run by the papacy. Oh, sorry. By the papacy. Not the popacy. That's not a word. Being run by the papacy. So it was controlled by the Catholic Church itself, unlike mm-hmm. the Spanish Inquisition, which was run by uh, the king and queen. Yeah, Ferdinand and Isabella were the monarchs at the time when they when the Inquisition was founded. And you have to kind of realize that when they came to power, they were coming at uh, coming to rule in Spain at a time when they had just kicked out the last of the Muslims and uh, in a thing called the Reconquista of Spain. For a long time, Spain was ruled by uh, Moorish, the Moors, the Moors, and whatnot. And the Ferdinand and Isabella wanted to establish their dominance as a truly Catholic power. Mm-hmm. So they kicked out. Um, they didn't. They kicked out the Muslims as well as the Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, though Jews were given a slightly different status. Um, some of them still remained in Spain, uh, but they were considered new Christians. As in they had to convert um, to Christianity, but they were still, even after they converted, they were still given a lower status because they were, quote-unquote, new Christians. 1492 was not just the year that Columbus sailed the ocean blue. It was also the year that they kicked out the Jews. Exactly. It was hugely bloody. It was pretty bad. Um, But, so the Spanish Inquisition wasn't just in Spain. 
um, it was the most heavy in Spain, uh, but it also was in the, uh, the quote-unquote new world. And that's what we're going to focus on for this podcast. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, you, the British Empire kind of became known as the one that the sun never sets on the British Empire. Mm-hmm. But before the British Empire had that uh, nickname, it was actually given to Spain. Exactly. They had huge, huge amounts of land. Um, huge colonies, I mean, essentially all of Central and South America were controlled by Spain and or Portugal mm-hmm. uh, at some point. And like half of North America too. Exactly. Like they were, it was huge until, you know, like inbreeding suffered the Spanish <laughs> Empire to fall and like stagnancy brought on by like hugely religious leaders. But that's for another podcast at a later time. Yeah. So the Spanish Empire in the, the New World was interesting because they Long before the English had big cities, uh, the Spanish had huge cities in Mexico City, Lima, and Cartagena. Mm-hmm. Uh, were all really big cities, and that's why the Spanish uh, Inquisition decided to set up kind of headquarters in these three cities yeah. at different points throughout the throughout the time. Mm-hmm. So the I guess one of like the one of the main working like historical theories about the. I guess not a theory, but just like a claim about the Spanish Inquisition was that it was the first modern bureaucracy to ever exist. Mm -hmm. And so this is a big key idea to think about when you're thinking about the Spanish Inquisition is that it wasn't just um, like it wasn't an old school like monarchy style thing. It was in fact like a modern bureaucracy and like was founded essentially what we think of as like bureaucrats today. Like that's one of the working like ideas about the Spanish Inquisition. So when we're talking about like the centers like Cartagena, Lima, and Mexico City, those were like bureaucratic centers for the Inquisition. It wasn't the Spanish Inquisition wasn't just like this mindless, bloodthirsty rabble of power-hungry people. It was like a coordinated like effort with like paperwork and yeah. like lots of stamps and things. Yeah. Like memos. Yeah. So I there's a lot of kind of myths that surround mm-hmm. the Spanish Inquisition. And some are kind of more true to, than others. And each, exactly. each, each kind of holds a grain of, of truth to mm. it. Uh, but like everything, it's always more complex than, exactly. than, the, uh, than it's commonly believed. So when, when you say the Spanish Inquisition, like what are some things that just come to your mind, images that come to yeah, your mind? Yeah, like the big one is, I always forget the name, but it's like the dark, there's a, it's a, the people call it like, like the black, like something, I forget what it is. But <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, Mitch, come on. The Black Legend. The Black Legend, yes. That's, like, the big thing. The Black Legend about, like, Spain. Like, nothing at this time in Europe, people people referred to it as a Black Legend during, like, while it was happening. Yeah. And that it's, like, nothing was coming in uh, Spain, nothing was coming out, especially and because of the Inquisition. Like, people, like, were afraid to go there because they think they thought they would die, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So that's not quite true, but it still has huge, like, portions of it that are pretty accurate. Yeah, and when you just say like Spanish Inquisition, you typically think of like someone being having their hands and feet tied to something and exactly. being strapped up and slowly tortured to death. Um, and that's I mean, the rack was a real thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, torture devices were really used, Strapado. and they were really really gruesome. But it wasn't as pervasive and uh like all in all inclusive that's not the right word this isn't a travel package at a hotel Mm -hmm. it wasn't uh it wasn't as pervasive as uh people made it out to be they there's this weird thing about the inquisition where they there's this very formal written down set of rules 
for how to torture, when to torture, and like moral backings for torture. There's books and books written on this of like, of why torture was morally correct, exactly how to do torture, and just like manuals on step-by-step instructions for how to do it. And it didn't happen for everybody. Not everybody got tortured. Yeah. That was most, most people actually didn't get tortured. Yeah. So even at the time that the Inquisition was at its height, there was uh, contemporary criticism and kind of discussion about the, the morality of, of torture and kind of how to use it, not scientifically, but in a precise manner to extract what you want, uh, the information that you need, in order to carry on the, the steps of a trial. Exactly. And the thing with the Inquisition, the, I guess another main thing to think about when you're thinking about the Inquisition is that, at least for the Spanish Inquisition, Whenever they took somebody, they took they captured somebody, kept them in the prisoner cells. They did it because they already knew they were guilty, or at least they thought they were guilty. There's a huge collection, like information collection process ahead of this time, where they would get people would come in, they would uh, tell a story about someone who they thought might be a heretic or a blasphemer, and then they would do all this research on on this person who had been accused of heresy or blasphemy, and it was only after that potentially years-long process had taken that someone would be captured and placed into the cells. And then torture was used to get the confession because the inquisitorial courts went into, like, went into the processes essentially knowing that someone was guilty. Like the idea of innocent until proven guilty mm-hmm. didn't really exist. If you were in the courts, you were considered guilty, but it wasn't considered like a wholly um, accurate... Um, like trial until you yourself confessed yeah. of being a blasphemy. And that's what torture was used for, yeah. to get confessions of things they thought they already knew had happened. And here's the crazy part, is that just getting a com- confession during torture wasn't enough. Uh, the the person who was being tried had to, like, then the next day go before the tribunal and say, yes, what I said was correct, and that I do admit that I did this crime. But if the person kind of knew that they were doomed to be executed or punished or something like that, they could just recant their statement. Because uh, like we said, the Inquisition had a bunch of written down rules. And one of the rules was, uh, like I said, just a, a, a tortured confession isn't enough. You actually had to get a confession when they weren't being tortured. Uh, so, you know, time up to rack all you want. But then the, if they said the next day that they were innocent, then they had to continue on the, the trial. Exactly. And, I mean, these torture sessions weren't exact, like, I guess we can talk a little bit about this. There was, there was an incredibly, like, dense amount of rules for exactly how people could be tortured. Um, there was, like, uh, and these are all, like, bureaucratic, like, laws that were handed down by the Suprema in Spain, which was, like, the head, the center head of um, the Inquisition, essentially, like, the White House for the Inquisition, almost. Um, but you couldn't torture someone for more than an hour a day. Um, you couldn't make them bleed. That was a big thing. Uh, no bleeding was allowed. That's nice. Yeah, exactly. You know, you can be tied to a rack, but as long as like yeah. there's no blood, it's totally cool. Yeah. So there's all kinds. There's all kinds of rules um, for these, um, but they, I mean, just because there are rules doesn't mean they were followed. Yeah. And, and that's we, like the sorry. Go ahead. No, I mean, just being tortured, just an hour time limit, and that's not too bad. I mean, we we torture our listeners for, exactly, for almost minutes. an hour. Um, it's basically the same thing. It's essentially, it's 100% yeah. the same thing. Aural torture. That's yeah. A-U-R-A-L. <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess 
to go back to the bureaucratic theory of the Spanish Inquisition, the one thing is that while these rules existed and there were layers on layers of bureaucracy from the Suprema and then it was either controlled by archbishops or bishops and they had people underneath who they hired, et cetera, et cetera, and they had to file reports of every torture session they went through. They had to send them back to Spain at huge costs. Yeah. If you were in South America, they had to send a, a stack of papers back and forth. They kept records of everything. Literally every trial session and every torture session, there was a scribe there recording what was happening. Yeah. Word for word, what people were screaming, what everyone was saying, they have records of all these things in Spanish. Yeah. And I just think about if you're in Lima, that's in Peru, on the western ha half of South America. So to, to have to send all these records back and await authorization to carry out the sentence or whatever, you had to get it on the ship, send it all the way around the south southern tip of South America because Panama Canal wasn't around yet. And then it had to go all the way up the eastern half of South America and across the Atlantic Ocean to Spain, and then it had to come back. Exactly. There's stories of people who were kept in these inqui inquisitorial jails uh, for 22 years until they died. They were never found guilty. They were never found innocent because of this like record that had to be shipped back and forth and over and over again. If they were lost at sea, they couldn't be found in some... Uh, some like holding place in Spain. These people were kept in this uh, essentially limbo because of this bureaucratic red tape they had to go through. And yeah. this was in like the 1400s. Yeah. Which is <laughs> insane to think about that like bureaucratic struggles like that had been going on for that many years. Yeah. It was, it was like the DMV. It was just like <laughs> off you have to wait in line and like wait for them to find all these different forms. Yeah. I, I say it's, it's more torturous than D&D. It's, it's awful. Yeah. It's hurt a little more. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so they were, they took all these records uh, in these bureaucracy things. And they're like, it's very interesting because all these records are super formalized. If you read them, um, it'll be for different people, but they all sound pretty much exactly the same. Uh, they had to write it down in a very like specific mandated format uh, for it to work. So you can't, it's hard like for historians to read these things because they all sound exactly the same. Yeah. They're all telling different stories. Yeah. And you also see a pattern with um, the question types of questions that are asked. Um, they always follow the same structure, which is actually kind of impressive in its uniformity across this massive empire that people followed these rules, at mm -hmm. least on paper it seems that they did. Um, and everyone who was interrogating someone or the tribunal would ask the same questions and follow the same procedure that was so uniform over this expansive empire. Exactly. Over 400 years, too. Uh, and things were kind of changed and, and tweaked a little bit here and there, but I'm, it's kind of astounding the efficiency of the bureaucracy. Exactly. And besides, you know, the 22-year long trial sometimes. Yeah. So I guess we should also... So we talked about the bureaucratic angle of, like, how historians look at um, the uh, Spanish Inquisition. Uh, and that's mostly the big book on that, in case you're interested, is Modern Inquisitions... Peru and the Colonial Origins of the Civilized World by Irene Silverblatt. She's a big proponent of this bureaucracy theory of the Spanish Inquisition. But we should also talk, I guess, about why the Inquisition got started in yeah. Spain and why it moved over to Central America. Um, so the point of the Spanish Inquisition is to... there's a, It's a little weird. So the normal, like the non-Spanish Inquisition was to root out heresy. So that's to root out people who weren't following like the strict uh, guidelines of the Catholic Church, like people who like may say something that like they're still they still considered themselves Christians, but they had different beliefs in the Catholic Church. Yeah. And so the goal of the Inquisition to, was to root out those. 
But when you get to the Spanish Inquisition, they also they want to root out heretics. They also want to root out non-believers and blasphemers. Mm-hmm. Non-believers uh, were specifically Jews and the Muslims. Yeah. And when they go to Central America and South America, it wasn't Muslims anymore. It was pretty much strictly Jews. Yeah. And then people who were um, like African, uh, who had brought their African religions over with them when they were um, brought over as slaves. Yeah. Um, they were called crypto-Jews. Exactly. Uh, were these kind of people who, because when they, when Ferdinand and Isabella expelled the Muslims and the Jews from, from the Iberian Peninsula, uh, or from Spain, at least. A lot, of, a lot of them fled into Portugal at the time. Um, they wanted to make everything, make their kingdom a uniform Catholic kingdom. And so they forced those who decided to remain either to, you know, either you leave or you're going to be executed or you're going to be, or you will convert. And they knew that there were people, there, there would be people who would on, you know, at, on paper they would say that they converted. But in reality, they would keep carrying out their, so-called heretical practices, and they would use, uh, so it was, the Inquisition was initially a, a force to kind of root out those people who were doing these things and hiding. Exactly, and then when we go to Central America, you have a lot of uh, Jews who uh, were forced out of Spain, went over to the New World and the New Colonies. There were also um, uh, slaves from Africa who were brought over to work in the sugar fields and plantations, and then there were also the native um, South American and Central Americans who had their own religions there. Mm-hmm. And so when the Spanish first came over, they did mass conversions. Essentially, like they would have like the Dominican and Franciscan monks would uh, come over and they would convert people like hundreds and thousands at a time. Like they would do whole cities and say like I we bless you in like the name of Jesus Christ or whatever and they, they would be like okay, you're now Christians. Hooray. Hooray. <laughs> and for, you know, like 50 some years, they thought that it worked. But then when the Franciscans and Dominicans started, they started finding that no one was actually like believing like quote unquote in Christianity. They were just like added Jesus to like their religion essentially. Yeah. He was like, he wasn't like the, the number, he was still he was just a, a deity along with everyone else. Ooh. And they hated that. They didn't yeah. like that. And so they petitioned the king and queen who were absolute monarchs at the time, absolute rulers. They petitioned them to get more power. Yeah. And it's it's so interesting, and that's why it's kind of it's going to be more interesting to focus on the Inquisition in in the New World because it was such a mix of different cultures and ethnicities. Um, it was kind of believed that a lot of a lot of times the Inquisition wouldn't touch um, natives or native Native Americans because they felt that the natives didn't know any better in a sense, yeah. and they were kind of like children, kind of would be free to do their own thing. But if you were someone from African descent, you were still expected to, to know better because Africa had, I guess, been connected to the European world for, for so much longer since their, the continent's proximity is so much closer to each other that even if you were, it didn't matter what part of Africa you were from, if you were just some slave who'd just been shipped over there, you were still expected to convert and would be punished severely if you didn't. Exactly. There's a, one of the, the huge like early debates in South America and Central America during the Inquisition was whether or not only white people could be tried by the Inquisition. Mm-hmm. And Ferdinand and Isabella eventually had to rule on this along with the Suprema, and they decided that um, these the, the native Central and African and South Americans um, could be tried in these courts of Inquisition. Yeah. And so I guess now we're talking about like the development of the um, Inquisition. 
because the Inquisition was weird, they couldn't make their own money. They didn't have yeah. the power to fund themselves. They didn't have the power to tax people. Mm-hmm. They relied solely on like the they relied solely on Ferdinand and Isabella to to like give to fund them essentially. And so they first started out really small, um, but they had to follow the same rules as the Inquisition in Spain. And mm-hmm. keeping records of everything is super expensive. Finding scribes was super expensive. Um, they had to build their own jails, and these jails were supposed to be secret. They weren't. People weren't supposed to know where they were. They weren't um, supposed to. In order, they weren't. At least they, if they knew where they were, they weren't supposed to be. They weren't supposed to be able to see inside. Uh, doing all this research on people who came in is incredibly expensive. Yeah, and they had to uh, hire dementors to guard the <laughs> gates. And the, the exactly, dementors uh, charge a lot. Yeah. So this is a super expensive operation. Um, but the one thing they did have, besides small amounts of funding from Ferdinand and Isabella, was that if they, if someone was accused and thrown in jail, they could seize their assets. Which meant that at the beginning, um, some pretty prominent wealthy people got accused of uh, being heretics, blasphemers, and crypto-Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, uh, there's this one guy who started like the Great Jewish Conspiracy. And this is really what um, allowed the Inquisition to come into power in um, South and Central America, in the Spanish colonies. Uh, so I'm blanking really hardcore on his name. I wrote a whole, like, 20-page paper about him. Um, <laughs> so that's horrible. That <laughs> I can't do it. Um, but he was an archbishop. He, came, he was Basque, uh, from the Basque region of Spain. His uncle had worked in the Inquisition in uh, Spain and brought him over to uh, the New World when he was a young boy. Uh, He had degrees in both uh, philosophy and law, not philosophy, um, in religion and law, which most, a lot of inquisitors had. Um, There's a whole other historical strain on the differences between uh, inquisitors who had uh, judicial degrees and inquisitors who had just had religious degrees. I won't go into that here. That's pretty technical. (laughs) Uh, um, and so he had both. Uh, so he was a super smart guy, and he's the one who really started off, like, who grew the power, the immense power of the Spanish Inquisition in the colonies yeah. through it's, this great Jewish conspiracy. Yeah, uh, just real quick, while you're trying to um, think of the rest of the story, uh, it's, it's, it's just interesting to, to see that these people involved were you know, both secular lawyers as well as religious lawyers, mm-hmm. and that sometimes... People at the time even said that it was better to have someone who was a secular lawyer completely uh, work for the Inquisition because either they'd be more fair or they'd be more just or they'd know know the actual secular rules and laws better than perhaps a religious lawyer. And so it's interesting that there was already some, some criticism, discussion of that kind of stuff, as well as just thinking about how Ferdinand and Isabella as monarchs were were the ones in charge of the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, because it was kind of their way of bringing the church in Spain under their own rule. Uh, so the Inquisition was run essentially by the by the secular state. Exactly, yeah. It wasn't a purely religious institution, which is how these legal people could get in. I mean, at this time, to separate the idea of a legal code from the idea of like church doctrine mm-hmm. is pretty foolhardy, especially in Spain. Yeah. There isn't really the existence of a separate uh, like legal code um, or non-religious courts, but it is starting to develop and people still do study like religious, like the, the law, 
at this time. This that uh, difference does exist, but it's not like as separated as we would think of it as being today. Yeah, we're not saying that it was completely a, a secular organization or anything like that. No, um, but it's just kind of interesting to see it as somewhat of a step towards yeah. a, a more secular government. Exactly. And so, um, going back to the great Jewish conspiracy, I'm looking up this guy's name um, because I would really want to figure it out and just, you know, to help you guys uh, learn a lot. So he was, um, so he was uh, trying to like start. He's trying to essentially he is a power grab. Um, he had he had just been installed as an archbishop and head inquisitor um, in the colonies, and he really wanted to. But there was someone um, who was also working with him, and he wanted to be like the number one um, guy there. And so what he did was he started, um, he found a couple of uh, merchant, uh, Jewish merchant traders. At this time, these guys were still um, really big um, in trading uh, Jews. Um, and these were, and he said that um, they weren't, these traders that he found, uh, they weren't out as Jewish, essentially. They were these new Christians we talked about previously. Who had they were living in Spain? They had converted. They had all these documents. You had to like prove like your blood status, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, there was called like Ligua Sangua or something. Um, so they proved they had to prove that they they proved that they were Jewish. But he essentially, and this this gets started because someone um, reported to the Inquisition that they saw someone who didn't eat pork for breakfast. This the whole great Jewish conspiracy was talked was like started because someone reported that their neighbor didn't eat bacon for breakfast, which was a sign seen as a sign that this guy was Jewish. Yeah, and so they arrest him, they bring him in, um, and eventually he gives up a bunch of names of his quote unquote crypto Jewish conspirators. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's people would use anything that would point to someone being. Jewish on uh, for anything, as if someone didn't, if like someone wouldn't conduct business, like they wouldn't sell you something on Saturday, mm-hmm. uh, they saw that that was a sign that you were actually secretly Jewish. There were all these different things that people would look out for uh, to just try and snag you. I mm-hmm. guess exactly. And part of and these people, whenever the Inquisition was started in a town, or they would come to town, they would always say. We are now like opening, like we're here. You have 30 days to, if you've committed either a hearsay or a blasphemy, or you know someone who has, you have 30 days to come to us um, and you'll be treated less harshly yeah. than you would if we found out about what happened after these 30 plus days. Yeah. And so that this happened during those 30 plus days. Yeah. Go ahead. And I don't know, it's, it's important to note that a lot of the times, because you can see this as being something that would be abused, where someone would just say, hey, I don't like that. I don't like my neighbor. I'm going to go report him to the Inquisition. But the records kind of show that the majority of cases were thrown out after a while. Exactly. Uh, they may, you know, you had to get so many people to sign off on saying, okay, this should be investigated uh, versus if they, if you know, if you didn't have enough people signing off on it, then they wouldn't even look into it or they'd drop it after a little while. Um, so it wasn't, while it was abused a lot of the time, mm-hmm. It wasn't abused to the ex- the extent that you might assume. Exactly. So the guy who I'm talking about here, his name is Juan de Zumarraga. I can't nice. believe I actually forgot that name. Um, so yeah, he was the uh, he was the one who pretty much like really gave power to the Spanish Inquisition, and this is all happening in the like mid 1500s, like 1530s. 
1540s. Um, so anyway, so they get this guy in jail and who's accused of not eating bacon. And eventually he gives up. He is a, He turns out he is actually like a crypto Jew. Um, and he, so he gives up some names of people around him. And this eventually spirals into this whole, quote unquote, like great conspiracy of uh, crypto Jews throughout the world trying to control trade and kind of things. And that's, I mean, that's a, it's a way, of course, it was a way overstatement by the Inquisition of how like deep this like network of crypto Jews went. Yeah. Uh, it did exist. Like there were like, obviously, if you're in hiding, you want to find other people who are in hiding. Um, and so there were like crypto Jews who knew each other. But they didn't have any sort of like economic power or like trade power, and most of the people they ended up um, like putting like at least uh, two hundred some people in jail um, and killing uh, maybe around a hundred more. Um, but not all of them were crypto Jews, and they weren't all involved in like some great conspiracy. Yeah. So there is a grain of truth to this, but it was mostly used as a power grab by Zumaraga to make the Inquisition stronger. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to do this in part because it would give him a reason to get money from the king. He can go, look, we're still doing all this. Like, this is what the Inquisition, look, we have to face. There's this huge, like, uh, sickness in the in the colonies with all these blasphemers. Yeah. Like, give us more money to, like, <laughs> find them. Ah, oh, jeez. So it wasn't always strictly religious. A part of it, a lot of it was, like, either money for yourself or getting power. Yeah. Um, and it's actually kind of interesting to look at the what the kind of crimes that people investigated. Yeah. Um, I have a little bit of statistics oh, for you. Stats, uh, very exciting. On It kind of points out the differences between uh, this Inquisition in Spain and the Inquisition mm-hmm. in the New World. So, like, like we kind of talked about, the main target for the Inquisition was heresy. You know, someone who would go against the church or speak out against the church, or someone even like crypto-Jews would fall under the yeah. heretical column. So that was supposedly the main target for the Inquisition. And in, in Spain, it actually took up 42% of the crimes from 1571 to 1700. So not like majority of crimes, but a huge chunk exactly. of it was indeed heresy. Um, but in the, new, in the New World, in New Spain, it only took up 27.5% of the crimes in that period. Um, so where the other crimes were, where they're investigating in New Spain, was sex, sex crimes. Yeah. Um, which is really interesting. Uh, in, in actual Spain, in old Spain, if you will, they only made up 5.6% of the crimes, whereas in the New World, it was 24.1% of all the crimes. Um, so that was, and bigamy itself, just the, the crime of, of sleeping with someone else when you're married, mm-hmm. um, took up 18% of all cases in New Spain. And so there are some really interesting kind of stories of, of people who are crime who were who accused of these crimes, and you can kind of also look at it as sometimes uh, gendered. Exactly. Um, you know what were men being accused of versus what were women being accused of. Um, there's there's an interesting case of uh, Maria de Sotomayor, um, and not it, related to the Supreme Court judge. No, I mean maybe. But I don't think so. Yeah, as far as we know. <laughs> as far as we know. Yeah. Um, and so this this trial went on for 12 years, from 1538 to 15... <laughs> two years. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I could have just really easily, no one would have known. Exactly. I, I should have exactly. decided 1550. Yeah, added, adding 10 is pretty hard. You know, we're historians. We're not, <laughs> we're not math, math 
Magicians. Magicians. Ooh. Oh, <laughs> All right, tell your story. Uh, anyway, um, so she was accused of, uh, she arrived in Mexico City and was accused of getting married to someone in Mexico while already being married to someone back in, in Spain. Um, her defense was that she said that she believed that her original husband in Spain had died. Uh, after kind of some invest- months of investigating, it was found out that, no, his, her original husband was alive. He was just extremely abusive, and she had tried to flee him and escape from him and had met this new guy that she really liked, and they'd fall in love and try and got and gotten married in Mexico. Uh, so it didn't... But in the eyes of the Inquisition, none of that mattered. Exactly. The fact that they were completely separated by an entire ocean, that she hadn't seen this guy in years, and that she thought that he was dead or probably hoped that he was dead because he was so abusive to her. Uh, it didn't matter. They instead charged her with a very humiliating punishment. Um, they forced her to strip naked from the waist up, uh, prayed her from before a congregation, and confiscated half of her property, which, yeah. you know, like we said, was kind of how the Inquisition made some of their money, or a lot of their money. Uh, and then she was told to... Then she was placed on the next ship bound for Spain. Um, it's actually interesting, though, because two years later, it was discovered that she never went back to Spain. Instead, she escaped and fled to Peru, and she was caught again. Um, and if it, then she you know, had the same excuse of saying, I was trying to, I didn't want to go back to my abusive husband. Uh, but instead, they threatened her with 300 lashes with a whip excommunication from the church and release to the secular arm, which means execution, um, if she did not comply. And in the end, she was forced to go back to Spain to her abusive husband and leave the potential for this new world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's one of the examples of just how, like, all pervasive the Spanish Inquisition was and how much power it had, that it could, um, like, Spain... And it had marriage records, and they could they would travel across essentially the world mm-hmm. to find these people. But it's also interested um, when talking about gendered um, history here. Um, there's a large amount of history uh, being done currently and already been done on how women were using the the forms and the bureaucracy levels of the Inquisition to make a space for themselves and to, in many ways, like. Uh, show agency in the world and give themselves agency through the Spanish Inquisition. Mm-hmm. The Inquisition was uh, much, much harder on women, and women had a much more, less, much less freedom um, in this highly Catholic, highly regimented world. But there are stories of many women who are able to use the forms and rules of the Inquisition to their advantage. Um, the like people, the idea people knew what was happening in the Inquisition at this time. Um, because everyone, at some point, you knew someone who had been involved in the Inquisition. And you were supposed to keep it secret. Like when you were released, if you were released from the Inquisition, you weren't supposed to tell anybody what you had happened, what you had saw, what you had heard. But of course, these stories got out. And so people knew what the Inquisition was looking for. They knew what people who had been free had said. And they knew how, like, what kind of questions they were going to be asked. And they knew how to answer these questions to get themselves off the hook. Or at least try to get themselves off the hook. So as we see in this, this story Mitch just told, there's this woman who's, uh, she knew she knows that to claim that she doesn't know who her husband anymore. And that, that ploy didn't work, but she still knew what she had to say to potentially make herself free. Mm-hmm. There's other stories of women who there's this um, famous tale of this uh, like 14, 15-year-old girl 
who um, said she was um, an angel, essentially, was uh, talking to her and was like, at some points, like talking through her. And so, of course, this was being investigated um, by the Franciscans and by the Dominicans and by the Inquisition to see if it was true. And for years, like three years, she was able to convince uh, Franciscan, Dominican, and Inquisition monks uh, and religious leaders that this angel was talking through her and that it wasn't a demon and that she was being possessed by this godly creature because she knew how to talk to it, uh, how to talk to them and tell them what they wanted to hear Mm -hmm. because the Inquisition was so, like, internalized in living their lives. Yeah. There's other stories of women who, uh, to like maintain their role, uh, maintain like some, whatever power they had, um, were able to work um, the rules of the Inquisition in their favor um, and make it so that they were able to live their lives and not be like trapped by the rules of the Inquisition because they knew how to work this system so mm-hmm. well. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because uh, we kind of talk about somehow some of the trials would take take space over you know, decades mm-hmm. even, um, that wasn't always because they were weighing on bureaucracy or they were um, just like torturing them every day. It could have been because the person on trial was fixing, was work, working the system and exactly. had known from friends or people who had other experiences with the Inquisition that, you know, if you keep, you know, contradicting yourself and never give, give them a straight story or whatever, you can extend and prolong this. Exactly. But it's also interesting to talk about um, the way that women expressed power um, in this kind of new world, because as we kind of spoke about a little bit before, it was a very mixed cultural uh, melting pot in the new world and that's at this time. And witchcraft and mm-hmm. sorcery yep. actually made up a huge portion, I don't have the numbers before me, but a huge portion of crimes in the new world and next to nothing in Spain. Exactly. Um, people really believed that they could do these things and women especially uh, took to sorcery and witchcraft um, a lot. Mm-hmm. And these would, were, sorry, uh, just a little, they were, these witchcraft things were taken from both Spanish cultural tradition, African cultural tradition, and uh, New World cultural tradition. There's like a, it was a mix of all three that came together and was really powerful in uh, these colonies. Yeah. So, I mean, women would try and use witchcraft to create love potions to make someone fall in love with them. There's, there's an account of that. Um, to bring back, if they were worried about their husband straying, they would use a potion for that, or if they wanted to kill them, mm-hmm. uh, kill an abusive husband. Uh, there's one trial um, of a woman, uh, Juana Perez, who later came against... Um, oh, wait, the, the trial was against Maria de Barcena, and a woman who testified against Barcena was Juana Perez, who said that Barcena had come over to her house and... Perez was comp- complaining about her abusive husband. And Barsena said, uh, and this has come from the, from the transcript, Barsena said that you should kill your husband and I know how to do it. I have certain powders and roots as with, as with one of them, if you place it under your husband's pillow where he sleeps, it will cause him to quickly die. Mm-hmm. Uh, Perez refused the offer, but there was another um, account of another woman who Barsena approached about the same exact situation and offered... Yeah, to kill their husband with some kind of power powder that they place under the pillow. Um, so it's just interesting to see that I mean, these were ways, it, it, something from as mundane as a love potion to trying to poison your husband, uh, witchcraft was kind of used to kind of it, give women some power and agency. Exactly. Yeah, it's uh, it was such it was a huge part of um, 
cultural life uh, in these colonies, and they were it was trying to be stamped out by the Inquisition, essentially. But um, they couldn't really do it. Um, so along with trying to stamp out witchcraft, um, cut down on these sex crimes, there's also another big part of the Inquisition in Spain was censorship. They had 100% um, control of every printing press in the country that they knew about. Um, and so they were able to, they were able, it was pretty much complete domination of the printed word at this time. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, printing was so expensive uh, and so relatively new, um, they were able to 100% control um, what people were able to read. They would, uh, when they found somebody, they would go into their house, look through, if they had books at all, look through all the words, um, look through everything, and uh, they would use that as evidence that they were committing heresy or blasphemy. Yeah. There's even like a rec there's even a log, forgetting the name of the log, of all the illegal um, works, and this is put out every year by the Suprema. Mm -hmm. Though in true bureaucratic uh, tradition, it, not everybody had, not all the inquisitors had a copy of it, and even if they did, they didn't always like follow it. Yeah. So I mean, like Harry Potter definitely would have been banned. Oh, one hundred percent. Um, because that has witchcraft in it. Yeah, witchcraft culture. and wizardry. Yeah, that's the name of the school, guys. Uh, <laughs> they hated that stuff over there. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because this t is taking place at the same exact time as the Protestant uh, Reformation, mm -hmm. and Martin Luther is publishing his things, and in a lot of the German states, Protestantism is starting to take a hold, and as we kind of mentioned, uh, the Catholic, the monarchs of Spain wanted to show how. They were Europe's leading preeminent Catholic uh, kingdom and stuff like that. So image and symbolism was everything. And one of the main ways that you could con control your image was by censoring mm -hmm. things that you didn't like. Yeah. And leading off of that, we should talk, probably talk about a little about the auto de fe's uh, for image stuff. Uh, so these, the auto de fe, um, what is that? I forget what that stands for in Spanish. Um, it stands for auto de Auto de Fu stands for it. That is it means it translates to. Um, so anyway, these were the big events that the Inquisition put on. These were their true displays of power. Uh, this is where all their image like came from. The Auto de Fe. This is when people think of the Spanish Inquisition, they often think they're thinking of uh, pictures and images from the Auto de Fe's. Mm -hmm. These were everyone was sentenced. This is where the blasphemers, the heretics, the crypto Jews. These were there where they were found guilty and or innocent. Yeah, and I mean every kind of Spanish town across their empire had a big plaza in the middle of it, a giant square. This wasn't just a, a meeting place or a marketplace, but it was the central point of the town, and that's where uh, the auto de fe's would take place. They set up big platforms, and they'd set up like stands, like bleachers, exactly. rows and rows of bleachers, where certain people would sit, and everyone else would be watching. And in like the case of Maria de Sotomayor, uh, how she was kind of paraded before it was before a, a smaller congregation. But punishments like that would often be carried out at the auto de fe. Mm -hmm. And these were huge, hugely expensive events. Um, this is where most of the money of the Inquisition went, were these auto de fe's, um, especially in the big towns like Mexico City or Lima or Cartagena, um, because it showed just how powerful and um, where that the Inquisition could reach anybody. So mm -hmm. the mayor, like the Lord Mayor would come, like all the archbishops, everyone would be there. Mm -hmm. And this is where people who were found guilty would be sentenced to die either at the stake um, or they would be um, given like their um, the things they had to wear for a year as penance they'd be given their punishments yeah uh, interesting thing Mitch mentioned this earlier but when someone was sentenced to die by the Inquisition it was called uh, being relaxed in secular arm yeah because the Inquisition technically 
couldn't kill anybody. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was deemed as like a moral sin for the Inquisition to kill somebody. And so, but they still really wanted to kill people. Yeah. So they had to find a way around it. Yeah. And so what they did was they, it was called relaxing to the secular arm, which means the secular arm technically was the one who was killing these people. Exactly. Uh, and just like how they couldn't draw blood during torture, torture sessions had to last for an hour. A lot of like the physical stuff, especially with the Inquisition, had strict rules. Mm-hmm. And like I said, they couldn't kill anyone technically, so they would uh, relax it to the secular arm and let the secular authorities, whoever they may be, yeah. um, burn them. Yeah, so when you hear of like, people being burned at the stake by the Inquisition, technically that's not true. They were being burned at the stake by the secular government of where it was happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's, like, I don't know if it's, there's the, a lot of the numbers are like weird to hear, like thousands, like not a thousand, that'd be way high. But you hear of like a couple hundred people dying in Ardefe. de Fe. That's actually probably wrong. Mm-hmm. What they did was a lot of people died while they're in the cells because they were in these dank, dark cells. They couldn't see anybody. They couldn't talk to anybody. Uh, and so a lot of people either went insane and or committed suicide. But the Inquisition still thought they had to be punished. So what they would do was at these hour de fe's, they would create fake people. They would create mannequins. And then they would still burn them at the stake. They would burn these... Um, effigies. Effigies, sorry. Called, yeah. Yeah. Punishment and effigy. And they, but they would still write it down in the records as that person being burned alive. Yeah. Even though it was actually an effigy. So generally, people still at these things, it was still horrible and grotesque. People would still be actual people who were alive, would be burned alive. But it was a way less than what is written down in the records and what we thought of for a while. Yeah. And it might sound weird, you know, burning someone in an effigy, but that was a common European tradition um, for people you didn't like. And it's even carried out today in England. They burn effigies of Guy Fawkes Mm -hmm. um, in celebration of... Guy Fox Day. Exactly. Yeah. Which is a weird celebration. But yeah. that's besides the point. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so these out of the phase were the huge displays. And this is, they led a trail, uh, a train throughout the town of everyone who had been accused and everyone who was going to be in this out of the phase. It wasn't a conga line. It was not a conga line. It was very sad. Everyone came in. They had, everyone had to wear like the super tall hats and the um, shirts with, there's a word for it, shirts with like crosses on them. Um, and they were all in these lines. Um, and if you weren't at the Outer de Fe, if you lived in that town and weren't there, it was essentially like you would be like guilty of like heresy. Yeah. Like the, someone would notice and like for the next one, you'd be in that line for not <laughs> showing up. Like people would come from miles out of town because they knew this Outer de Fe was happening. It was such like a huge, huge event um, that everybody was there. Mm-hmm. Like, so the whole town saw you be punished and saw you be humiliated in front of everybody. Yeah. You, you were, and then you were essentially kicked out of town after that. Yeah. You couldn't come, and you usually couldn't come back for multiple years. You had to leave everybody behind. Yeah, because I mean, like we said, the main point of the Inquisition wasn't to kill people. It was to punish, especially relapsed people, exactly. um, heretics and stuff like that, or people convicted of it at the first at, for the first time. So there, were, and there was a huge variation in different levels of punishment, mm-hmm. from like a small humiliation to execution exactly. at the very far yeah. end. So the ba- vast majority of people were just humiliated. Exactly, humiliated. You had to either you had to buy like some candles or something for the local church. Yeah. It was like one of the small punishments. Yeah. Yeah, because the goal of the Inquisition, we probably should have started with this, was like to bring, to keep people in the church. Yeah. They didn't want people to like leave the church and be dead forever, excommunicate them. They wanted to still be part of the church. They also wanted to teach them a lesson. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's the end yeah. of the talk. Uh, so... Remember, the Spanish Inquisition, modern bureaucracy, um, 
big takeaway. Not as terrible as is commonly believed. But still freaking horrible. Yeah. Uh, women were able to sometimes, you know, use it to their advantage. Mm-hmm. Weirdly enough. And it was just everywhere in life. Everywhere. All right. That has been another episode of The Greatest Podcast in History. Very unexpected episode. Very unexpected. You never expect the Spanish Inquisition to come. No. Uh, I'm Dylan. I'm Mitch. And thank you very much.